0: Good morning. It's good to see you. It's wonderful to be able to sing those praises together this morning. You can go ahead and begin opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, as we pick back up in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, we actually picking it back up after a brief hiatus this summer. As you're turning there, I noticed, especially when my children were younger, and I would comment on this as as they were younger, it may still apply to one or two of them, that it's right before bedtime that an amazing transformation takes place with your children. A couple of you have heard me say this. They become dehydrated theologians. (laughs) They desperately need water as if you've been withholding it from them all day. But then they begin to ask questions. Not simple questions, but complex, abstract, philosophical, theological questions. Like, why did God make the earth round? Why do animals die? Where do they go when they die? Why did God bother with a platypus? How do we know God loves us? And the list goes on. You have to admire, to some extent, their stall tactics, because you don't want to ignore their questions, but neither can you stay up for another two or three hours explaining their salutis or different forms of eschatology. Especially now with a three-year-old. But to a certain extent, we never outgrow these hypotheticals. Hopefully, we find better times to discuss them and think about them than right before bed. But we ask questions, we seek out answers, and that can be a healthy enterprise. But like our children right before bed, it can also be used to distract us from other things, other important things. We might use it to avoid dealing with practical issues, like be kind to one another. It can also be used as a weapon. Some persons like to come up with unanswerable questions in order to make someone else look silly, or to embarrass them, or try to discredit them, right? It's like the question, can God make a rock so big he can't lift? It's used by atheists especially to try and trick naive Christians to make them think God is really not omnipotent. He's really not all-powerful. He can't really do anything, can he? By the way, if you're stuck on that question, come find me. It's both illogical and it starts with an incorrect definition of God's power and his omnipotence. There's no more limitation on God's character than it is to say God cannot lie or that God cannot stop being God. These aren't limitations of, her char- of his character, they're descriptions of it. So what does all this have to do with the Gospel of Matthew? Good question. There were, at the time of Christ, two primary groups within the religious leaders. We've encountered them before in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. You've heard them mentioned in our study, you've probably if you've been in church long, you've heard it many times. It's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There were other sects and groups, but these were the two largest groups. And something that all the groups had in common is how they liked to wrangle and argue over complex theological and philosophical questions. They would try to come up with bizarre hypothetical questions in order to make the other look silly. That was their goal. It was to one-up one another, to look better, more impressive, more important, to have more authority than the other group. Last week... The Sadducees got to sit back and watch and observe as the followers of the Pharisees had tried to take their shot at discrediting Jesus and causing him to fall out of favor with either the people or with Rome. They would have taken either. Tried to trap him. We watched as not only had that failed, it completely backfired. Instead of falling out of favor with the people, the people were even more amazed with his teaching and his ministry including even the followers of the Pharisees themselves. They were amazed. Well, the Sadducees, while certainly wanting to see Jesus discredited and eliminated, they must have inwardly enjoyed just a little bit the spectacle Jesus made of their theological adversaries, the Pharisees. Well, if you've opened your Bible to Matthew chapter 22, we pick back up in this last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, before his death on the cross. And we're down in verse 33. That's where we left off. And the animosity, as we noted last week, between Jesus and the religious leaders, whether it be the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or any of the others, had reached a fever pitch. It's all hands on deck to try and get rid of this influential troublemaker named Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 33 of Matthew 22. I'm sorry, 20, verse 23. We'll read down to 33. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers with us. The first married and died having no children, left his his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken. Not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to, to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text, we pray that we'd have ears to hear and hearts to listen. That as we contemplate the hope of the resurrection that we find in this text, even in the midst of those who would desire to take Jesus' own life, to try and trap Him, to trick Him, to discredit Him, pray that we would think carefully about these things, that we would find hope and encouragement in these things. And that we would encourage one another so much more as we see the day approaching. In your name, amen. Well, just a bit more background on these Sadducees to understand what's going on here in the text we just read. The Sadducees were the smaller of those two leading sects, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees, they were... They outnumbered them significantly in terms of just sheer number. And yet, despite their smaller numbers, it was the Sadducees who wielded the most political power and authority and influence in Israel. They were the ones that were given oversight, for example, of the temple. And it was from this group that the high priest was chosen. And the Sadducees specifically prided themselves on their defense, their ability to argue the law of God. And amongst that, they considered the greatest, the most important, the primary to be Moses' teaching. Genesis through Deuteronomy, those first five books of the Old Testament, sometimes called the They looked at Moses' teaching as the authority of the Old Testament. Everything else was secondary. Sometimes it wasn't even to be considered. As a result, they had developed some unique and what we might consider unusual beliefs by this time. They rejected, for example, virtually anything supernatural, including miracles. They denied the existence of angels. They denied the eternality of the soul. They denied the existence of spirits. They denied the resurrection from the dead. They denied the existence of life after death. By contrast, the Pharisees believed in all those things. So there was constant wrangling and arguing between these two groups, over these things. It was really a power struggle at its heart. They wanted to one-up the other, but they were constantly wrangling over these things. Also, for a bit more context, Matthew did not include this story, but both Luke and John tell us about Jesus' close friend, Lazarus, who had died just a few weeks earlier. And just a few short days after his death, Jesus, showing up, had wept over his death, but then resurrected him from the dead. Said, Lazarus, come forth. Called him out of the tomb. And this had taken place just a few weeks earlier. So, resurrection would have been on the minds of the Sadducees and what Jesus had done, or at least what the crowds had claimed he had done. And that was a theological offense to them, because this was at the heart of some of their teaching, some of their doctrine. And so they needed to defeat Jesus, not just in general, but specifically on the issue of the resurrection. This was, pardon the pun, their hill to die on. Verses 23 through 28, Jesus plays along with their little game, much like he had with the Pharisees. Begins on the day, literally at that hour, immediately. The Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him the Pharisees had tagged out tagged in it was their turn they couldn't let Jesus catch his breath they needed to pounce right away so they asked Jesus a question that was based on levirate law from Deuteronomy 25 and the question they asked is completely hypothetical it was really an absurd question almost a laughable one it wasn't far from a question that we had in the medieval ages of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin I mean, what angel is going to waste its time dancing on the head of a pin to begin with? The question makes no sense. And Jesus' response demonstrates that the Sadducees were ignorant, not only of who Jesus was, they certainly were ignorant of that, but despite all of their theological study, they were also ignorant of scriptures, they were ignorant of the power of God, they were ignorant considering the resurrection, and they were ignorant concerning Moses' writings. And Jesus is just very brief response, really. He utterly dismantled years, decades of Sadducean debate, teaching, and authority. You see, the question the Sadducees ask immediately ignores the intent of the law in Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25 was given, and specifically Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, it was given as protection for the widow, specifically a young widow, It ensured her an inheritance where she would have had little to no other means of sustenance. It also protected the lineage of the families and the handing down of their property and their land. Land was a very important concept in the ancient Near East and specifically in Israel. But it was a very narrow, very focused and specific law. And it describes a situation where a father is still living and he has sons that have not yet inherited or divided the land, but one or Maybe multiple of them have married, and the son dies rather young, maybe at war, maybe through accident, through sickness. And to ensure a continued sharing of the inheritance and to continue providing protection for the widow, one of the other brothers was to step in and become the husband of the widow. But the Sadducees thought, despite the context, this would be a perfect question in which to trap Jesus. In fact they probably used a variation of this several times before to stump the pharisees in debate so this was likely a tried and true question from which no one had escaped or at least a variation of it their reasoning was from the text we've already read if there is a resurrection won't this woman be married to seven men according to verse 28 that is absurd so the resurrection must be absurd too that's their logic And because the resurrection is absurd, you didn't really raise Lazarus from the dead. And all this teaching about judgment in the afterlife is baseless. You are a discredited teacher. That's the belief of the Sadducees, and they thought they had Jesus. Verse 29, but. There it is again. We saw it last week in verse 18, the turning point of the story. But Jesus. Jesus, who is, according to John eleven twenty five 25, the very resurrection and life, responds. And he responds by showing the absurdity of their question and also their great misunderstanding of Scripture. He notes, to begin with, their faulty premise. Their question assumes that a resurrection life is identical to this earthly life. It may be similar, but it's not the same. The purpose of Deuteronomy 25 remember, was the protection of the widow in a harsh, unforgiving, sin-filled world. In the resurrection, however, such protection is not needed. That's the power of God, the Creator, who not only resurrects the body, but creates a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells and sin is no more. Such a resurrection has no sin. It has no suffering. And thus the entire purpose of this law in Deuteronomy 25 goes away. The widow will no longer have need of such a law and protection. But he takes it a step further. In fact, he strikes at some of their other bad theology. He notes that in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. He had to say that because they denied that there were angels. So Jesus, not missing an opportunity, decides to correct that as well. And then he goes on and undermines another key Sadduceean doctrine. And the passage that he refers to in verse 32 is a quote from the Old Testament. We'll look at it in just a moment, but it quotes a text that begins, ironically enough, with the angel of the Lord. And we won't, we'll go there in just a moment, but before we do, there are some who use this passage to provide a great deal of discussion about marriage and what marriage means in heaven. I don't want to spend too much time on the topic of marriage in heaven for two reasons. One, we don't really know that much. But secondly, Jesus didn't spend much time on it either because that was not the point. He only addressed marriage because they tried to use a discussion of marriage in this life to trap him with regard to the resurrection. That said, there are a couple of observations that would be worth making. There is clearly a change of relationship. In heaven, in the resurrection. However, that does not mean that a believing spouse would no longer be a friend, and perhaps even a close friend, the best friend. The physical intimacy is gone, but it will be replaced by something greater, something better. There's nothing to suggest we forget or do not recognize persons in heaven. In fact, quite the opposite. In fact, there's much more to suggest we will remember this life because it will give us greater reason for rejoicing at the salvation and the work of God. We have something to compare it to. And who better to spend that time rejoicing with than a spouse who has seen and experienced many of these same things? Yes, a change in the relationship. But now you get to rejoice together over all that God has done. I love natural wonders and waterfalls and mountains. But the excitement and joy of seeing those things and rejoicing them is a whole lot less when I don't get to share them, specifically when I don't get to share them with my wife. I want her to see and experience those things and rejoice in them with me. There is nothing to suggest that our ability to rejoice over the wonderful things of heaven will not be shared with those whom we loved in this life who also loved the Lord. But to say much else, we're bordering on speculation, so I'm going to leave it there. Now, look what Jesus does in verse. 30. In verse 31, Jesus turns to the scriptures and highlighting the blindness of the Sadducees, and he asks, "Have you not read?" I mean, this is an insult of insults. It's like asking an engineer, "Have you ever done math?" And then he quotes from Exodus chapter 3. Now, this is odd to me, because there's many explicit resurrection passages in Scripture. For example, we read in Isaiah 26:19, your dead will live, their corpses will rise, you who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Well, that sounds like the resurrection. I mean, that would have been a good place to go, Jesus. Or what about Daniel, chapter 12, verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others, to disgrace and everlasting contempt, they sleep in the ground, they awake, that sounds like a resurrection to me, that would have been a good place to go, and in what is likely the first book that was written in the Bible, Job. We read in Job 19, verses 25 through 27, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will take His stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another, my heart faints within me. Sounds a lot like resurrection. But he didn't go there either. Instead, Jesus takes us to Exodus chapter 3. So we should probably go there too. You am going to turn in your Bible, if you would, to Exodus chapter 3. The story opens on Moses. Whether you've grown up in church or not, you probably know this story. Moses, exiled from Egypt, fleeing Egypt. Wanted posters hung everywhere. Spent 40 years out in the wilderness pasturing, shepherding sheep. He married and he helped overlook his father in law's sheep to begin with. And while he was with his father in law, whose name was Jethro, when he was with his sheep one day, he looks up near Mount Horeb and he sees a bush that is burning. Okay, things catch on fire. That's nothing unique there. But he looks closer, and what does he see? It keeps burning with the same intensity without burning up. I mean, dry bush, that burns up fast. Okay, flames up big, goes out fast. Ask any of our young people who have ever thrown things into fire over and over again it burns up and then it dies off. But it wasn't burning up. So like any of us would do, he said, I've got to turn away and see this. Something is unique about this fire in this bush. So he turns aside. He doesn't yet know what you read in verse 2, that it's the angel of the Lord in the midst of the bush that made it look like it was on fire. The angel of the Lord appeared as fire in the midst of the bush. He gets closer, you see there, in verse 3, I must turn aside and See this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burning up. And as he draws closer in verse 4, a voice, the angel of the Lord, who is called God and Yahweh, calls out to him and says, Moses, Moses. Now, if it's me, I'm running or falling. I don't know how Moses kept his wits about him to answer, here I am. There must have been something to the voice that calmed his fears. The voice, which we are now told belongs to God, instructs Moses to remove his sandals. Show some respect. Do not bring what is unclean, which if you're a shepherd with sheep all day, there's a lot that's unclean on the bottom of your sandals. Do not bring what is unclean into the presence of God. At this point, Moses appears completely composed. He's talking with a voice coming out of a burning bush. He's following instruction from the voice. But then notice what happens in verse 6. The voice says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And something different happens to Moses. How does Moses respond? He cowers. He hides his face. He is terrified. Why? What was it about those words and this statement that was so profound to elicit such a reaction? Why did these words cause Moses to cower? Well, you can turn back to Matthew 22 because Jesus gives us the answer. It's an answer the Sadducees should have already seen. It's an answer we can see as we study the Old Testament. The answer is there in the text of Exodus 3 the whole time, but the Sadducees had missed it for years and years and years. All the religious leaders seem to have missed it. Now, the reason Jesus didn't go to all those other passages and responding to the Sadducees is partly because they would have demis- dismissed it out of hand. Remember, the Sadducees it was the first five books of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That was where you needed to make your argument. So Jesus said, okay, I can do it from there. So he takes them to the law of Moses. Not only that, he takes them to Moses. And he shows them how Moses responds when engaging with God. Specifically, how Moses responds to God's proclam- proclamation of the resurrection. I see you're flipping back to Exodus 3. You're thinking, um, I don't think I saw the word resurrection anywhere in Exodus 3. How is this a proclamation of the resurrection? This is where we have to pay close attention to the language and the grammar of the text. We talk about a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. Why? Because words matter. And here, verb tense matters. Jesus, in quoting this passage in Greek, uses what is called the present indicative. When he quotes, I am the God of. Now, why does that matter? Why are you getting a Greek grammar lesson this Sunday morning? Because God says, I am now, currently, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you see the conundrum? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead. They've been dead for hundreds of years. But God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And just in case they were still blinded to the truth, Jesus says in verse 32, God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. In other words, they were alive at that moment, though their bodies were dead. The only way God could still be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the active present tense was if they were still alive. And since their bodies had long since decomposed, As Job said, the worm has eaten it, my flesh has decayed. God must have been referring to life after death. And Jesus affirms that in verse 32. That's exactly what was meant. And you see, Moses understood that. That is why he cowered and crumbled at those words. He was struck by the awesome weight of what was just said. He was talking to the God of life and resurrection. God announced himself to Moses as the God of the resurrection. And here were these Sadducees too blind to see that the very one they revere, Moses, knew God as the God of resurrection and life. But there's more. You see, in Exodus 3, when you see... The angel of the Lord, not Anne, but the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, like you do here in Exodus 3, it is a reference to Jesus Christ. Before he became man, it's what is called called a Christophany, an appearance, a revelation of Christ in the Old Testament. We find Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. How wonderful is that? That the one who is the resurrection and the life was there revealing himself to Moses. And Moses responds. In fact, Moses' response condemns the Sadducees. Because rather than worship the one who is the resurrection and the life as Moses had, they are now seeking to put him to death. The irony is how futile this is. How do you kill the one who is the resurrection and the life? It's like trying to drown a fish. Well, the crowd's got it. Or at least they got the resurrection part. Because they are once again astonished at his teaching. Aren't you? Doesn't it make you want to go reread the Old Testament and see how much you might have missed? It makes me want to do that. We can't read and study a text like this and walk away without. Examining ourselves. Perhaps you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus as the resurrection and the life. If that's you, do not be like the Sadducees. Full of religion or having heard religion, but blind to who Jesus is and the power of God. You see, no matter how much they denied him on this earth, they eventually learned that they were wrong about the existence of heaven and hell. They learn they were wrong about the afterlife, and they learn they were wrong about the power of God. But they learn through judgment. In their case, they experienced the overwhelming power of God in judgment. Don't wait to learn these things until after you die. Because it will be too late at that point. Turn to God while it is still today, while salvation is still at hand. It is appointed unto every person to die, and after this comes the judgment. And that judgment will be a terrifying thing for any who have not called out to Christ and put their hope and trust in his death, his resurrection, and experience the mercy and the forgiveness that is offered. But Jesus is calling out to you, repent. Turn to him today. So he started our service with this morning. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's another group here this morning and we need to examine ourselves in light of this text and that's all of us who do claim to be disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. You see, we need to make sure that we're not acting like the Sadducees who spend all their time fighting over meaning and little to no time applying scripture. Living out scripture, believing scripture. Theology is good, we should study it. We've done a summer theology study in our men's group. But we need to study it in order to make it a part of our lives, to use it as a means of worshiping God. And we worship God first by making Christ known, and secondly, through the way we serve and live with others. And all of this is preparation for the resurrection, for the life to come. The great mistake the Sadducees made is thinking this life is all there is. And And I think there's a sense in which even as believers, we forget this or we lose sight of it. The pressing demands and the needs of our lives, they begin to blur our vision and we lose sight of heaven. We lose sight of the life to come. We stir up so much dust in the activity of our lives that we lose sight of heaven. This again is one of the reasons we need each other and we should be gathering with each other and believers every week, hopefully even more than that to encourage one another, remind one another of our hope, to help one another fix our eyes on heaven, to help settle the dust, clear our vision, clean off our glasses. This is why doing church on a beach by yourself is nonsense. You don't do church by avoiding other believers. We do church by gathering together, worshiping the Lord, serving one another, encouraging one another. So as we go out today, let's go out reminding one another of Christ, who is the source and hope of our salvation, the promise of our resurrection. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful reminder this morning. That Christ is our resurrection and life. Father, would we rejoice in that? Would we anchor ourselves in this truth? Would we remind ourselves and one another of this reality? And would it help us in how we live? Father, we know it will. Help us to believe it. Help us to think about it. Help us to remember it so that we would live lives that are pleasing in your sight. That we would turn our whole being into acts of worship and acts of service. That we would strive, however imperfectly, that we would strive to live each and every moment in each and every day to Your glory. We pray this in Your name, Amen. Let us all stand as we sing, "Christ, the sure and steady."